Psalm 17, 1 through 15. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart, you have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man by the word of your lips. I have avoided the way of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are relying on you and on your Holy Spirit to teach us from your word. I ask that you would bless us in this time, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have been with us for the past 10 months or so, you know that I have just finished preaching through the book of Exodus, and we have been there for quite a while. I preached through Exodus because I want our church to stand in awe of the holiness of God, to remember his power to save, and his passion for purity. I want us to remember his steadfast love and his mercy. And I want us to remember his forgiveness. I want us to remember the power of the plagues, the thunder of Mount Sinai, and both the wrath and the mercy that show God's holiness all throughout that book. I want us to remember the awesome throne room of God. I said again and again that Exodus takes slaves and leads them to worship. And you find that throne room in miniature, in symbol, in the tabernacle. And you find God's redeemed people worshiping him in obedience at the end of the book. But today, I want to look at what happens just a few generations after Exodus. God's people who witnessed his miraculous acts, his mighty saving power, had had this incredible experience where they saw his glory, they were led by Moses, and then they were led by Joshua in victory into the promised land. They saw God keep his promises in undeniable ways. It was so clear. 
God had poured out his judgment on Canaan the same way that he did on Egypt, and he gave his people the land that he promised to give them. And the Bible says at the end of the book of Joshua that the people were faithful to the Lord for the entire life of Joshua. But the next generation had not seen God do anything miraculous. They'd not seen him do anything spectacular. And the very next generation failed. And so there are two things that I want to say this morning. I believe that there are two kinds of people here. And I think what I'm about to describe does happen generationally, very commonly. But it also happens just in the span of a person's life. When you encounter God in a powerful way, you experience these peaks and these valleys. And what I want to do this morning is I want all of us to hunger for God to do the miraculous on a regular basis, to see him constantly. And so I want to describe the two types of people that I believe are here in our church this morning. And I think at some level, all of us experience both of these. But, but if you were to break it into two groups, I think there are some who have clearly seen God work in the past. Maybe you have a, a dramatic conversion story. Maybe you remember the point in your life when God rescued you and it was so obvious and so powerful that no one could deny that a miracle had taken place. And you hold on to that memory and that powerfully helps you understand who the Lord is. If that's you this morning, if you have seen God work in your life or in the life of a church, you may be discouraged because it may have been quite a while since you've seen that and you may wonder will God do that again why don't we see more of it and my prayer for you this morning if you have seen God work and you are hungry and you long to see him work again my prayer for you is that the word of God would encourage you this morning and give you fresh strength the second type of person is someone who has experienced God sort of second hand You may have heard other people describe how God has worked in the past, but you have never really seen it. And I think a lot of people like me kind of fall into this category where, you know, my dad had a powerful conversion story and God saved him dramatically, but I grew up in church. I didn't have a life of waywardness. For me, growing up in church, God was everywhere and nowhere at the same time because I never saw anything amazing and spectacular. And so for me, in coming to Christ, I had to learn and recognize things about myself that even though I didn't have a dramatic conversion story, I was still a sinner in need of salvation, in need of God to do something just as profound and miraculous in my young life as he had done in my dad's life as an adult. So that even though our stories are very different, mine is no less miraculous than God's. And the danger for me is that I miss the reality of what God is doing And just lean on the stories that I've heard from someone like my dad who saw it firsthand. If that's you this morning, if you have experienced God mostly secondhand, my prayer is that you would be encouraged also. But there is also the possibility that if you've only seen God work secondhand, you may not be wholly devoted to the Lord. 
you may actually begin to flirt with the idols and the things of this world that draw people away from God. And if that's you this morning, my prayer is that the word of God would lead you to repentance. And I want all of us together this morning in unity to be seeking God to work in a powerful way in each of us and in our entire church. So let me be specific about what I mean by God's work. I mean people being brought to life by the power of God's spirit through faith in Jesus. I mean sinners saying, I am lost and I need forgiveness. I I mean people recognizing that they need to obey the Lord in baptism, that they are saying, I was dead and God has made me alive in Jesus Christ. And I mean people finding radical joy in God rather than the worthless things that most people spend their life chasing after. My prayer is that we would experience that joy in such obvious ways that no one would be able to understand why we are so profoundly happy and blessed apart from Jesus Christ. That Jesus would be the only explanation for our joy and for our happiness. My prayer is that we would experience God in a tangible way consistently and that in those times when we don't seem to experience him, that our hearts would long for him that we would be like David, that we would pant as a deer for water, that we would hunger for God and that we would expect to see him act. And my prayer is that we would see people saved and that we would enjoy the presence and power of God every day. That is not what is happening in Israel in the book of Judges where we're going to be this morning. And if you have your Bible this morning or if you need one, I encourage you to grab one from one of the chairs around you. We're going to be in the beginning of the book of Judges, and this is very early in the Bible. If you just thumb your way just a few hundred pages, find the book of Judges, and we're going to look at chapter 6 this morning. Some of us long to see God act. Some of us are distressed because of pain and fear, and you may be calling out to the Lord, and that is what was happening in Israel. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 6, and then I'm just going to read a few verses a little later in the chapter. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Now go down with me to verse 6 and read verses 6 through 10 with me. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And so the scripture is very clear. You may remember in Exodus, God is very clear that if Israel were unfaithful and worshipped and followed other gods, that God would judge them. And that has come true in the life and history of God's people. They have not been faithful, and so they are experiencing the heavy burden of Midian. They are stealing their crops, they are killing their people. 
they are in distress and they are crying out. And they are crying out in fear and they are wondering, where is God? Why do we not experience the blessings of God? And so this morning, we're going to see God answer their prayers. And my prayer this morning is that all of us who long to see God work would be deeply encouraged because of how God answers prayer. So look with me this morning at how God calls Gideon and how Gideon responds to some degree in fear. And there are a few verses that I want to point out that are very particular that I think can speak to us very directly. So starting with verse 11, follow along with me. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wondrous deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Notice a couple of things about what Gideon says here. Gideon is not wrong in asking these questions, and he's not wrong in assessing the situation in Israel. God has allowed the oppression that they're experiencing to happen because they have been unfaithful as a people. And yet, Gideon is remembering that God will judge his people, but he is forgetting that God is a merciful God, that God offers forgiveness, that God offers hope. And so Gideon is somewhat like Chicken Little. He just believes that the sky is falling and that there is no hope. And what he should be doing is he should be leading people in repentance. He should be reminding people not only that God has said he will judge when they are unfaithful, but also that God has promised that he will rescue when his people call out to him. That God is a merciful God. That Israel had experienced in the past God's incredible mercy. And the message that Gideon should be preaching right now, but that he's not, is that there is profound hope. But instead, Gideon is caught up in the reality that they deserve the judgment that they're experiencing, and he doesn't know where to go next. And so he is profoundly hopeless, so that when the angel of the Lord appears to him and said, I'm going to use you, you will rescue his, your people, Gideon frankly can't believe it. And throughout the entire story, he wrestles with doubt, wondering if God really will do what God is saying very obviously to his face that he will do. And this morning, I think many of us are tempted towards discouragement, that we may look around at our church, we may look around at our community and say, is there hope? And I believe the scriptures say, yes, there is profound hope. God has offered us amazing promises. And my prayer this morning is that we would all be encouraged and rest in those promises that we would look to the Lord to save us. 
And so follow along with me and read a little bit more of how Gideon experiences this, this call of God and the wrestling that he experiences. Because the Lord replies, look at verse 14 with me. It says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the weakest in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Again and again, Gideon asks for signs from God. And again and again, God provides signs to him and assures him, I am with you. And God has given us so many amazing promises in his word. God has promised you and I today that he is with us in the power of his spirit. He has told us clearly what we must do. And I believe today, if you're discouraged, that you should not be. Because God will not fail. He will not abandon his promises. And so I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus is with us as we look to him. That Jesus will never fail. Just as God promised Gideon that he would be with him in victory. And just as God showed him again and again. So God will show you and I again and again as we look to his word that he is with us. And my prayer is that we would rest, that we would believe, that we would find that kind of peace that comes from believing God's word. I believe that when we look at the book of Judges, we as a 21st century church should see ourselves both in the people of Israel and in Gideon because Jesus is the deliverer. And although God uses different judges all throughout this book, God himself is always the deliverer. And don't be confused, God uses Gideon, but Gideon is not the savior. God is the savior. And so as we as a church look at this, I believe we need to recognize we are tempted to sin and idolatry. And when God asks us to step up and serve him, we are sometimes doubtful that he really would save us. And so today my message is very simple. I want to call you to forsake your idols, and I want you to believe that God loves you and will save you, that he is faithful to his promises. There's a really important question that we have to answer, and and that is, what do I mean by salvation? Well, I, I mean three things. First, there's the salvation that we talked about in our catechism question this morning. Have your sins been forgiven? Are you right with God? Have you received Jesus, the Savior, for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe that he is the Son of God and his blood was the payment for your sins so that you can have peace with God as you recognize, I deserved that punishment and Jesus took it for me. Jesus paid it all. Are you trusting that his blood paid the price for your sin? That is the first kind of salvation. That is peace with God. I believe many, maybe even most of you today would say yes to that question, that you have experienced that. And if that's you, then the Bible also teaches that there is a second kind of salvation that is in the future. You may have experienced the forgiveness of your sins, but I guarantee you that all of you still struggle with sin. I know this to be true because the scriptures teach it to be true. 
Some of you battle with depression. Many of you battle with different physical ailments. And when the Bible says that there is a future salvation, that all of creation groans waiting for the appearance of Jesus, the second kind of salvation that I believe we need to look for is that one day we will be like Jesus. We will not wrestle with sin anymore. And one day, creation will be restored and we will enjoy the blessings of God and we will be in the presence of God forever. There is a future kind of salvation that even if your sins have been forgiven, you still look forward to and you still long for. And God and his perfect timing will bring that at the exact right time. And so when I talk about waiting for salvation, I mean resting that it's on its way. That no failure of history, national or global, could stop that salvation. And that should provide incredible hope, no matter what God calls us to at our time in history, that his salvation is coming. But I also think that there's a third kind of salvation that we need to think about this morning. And that's the salvation of the individual church that we are a part of. As we pray for our church, I believe Jesus very directly looks at us And the the book of Revelation describes how he assesses different churches. Churches never fail because God is asleep. Churches never fail because the world is too powerful. But churches do fail when they are not faithful to the Lord. And Jesus says that church no longer represents me and he will not tolerate that and allow that. I believe that Jesus always keeps his own. But the Bible is very clear that Jesus will not tolerate churches that are unfaithful. So every church faces the danger of being unfaithful and experiencing God's judgment in the same way that Israel did. So the third kind of salvation is the rescue of the church from her own unfaithfulness. And I believe that we need to constantly pray for Jesus' church that we would be pure and that we would be ready to meet Jesus. And so this morning, as I express confidence in God's salvation, I believe that Jesus keeps his own, and I believe we need to urgently pray that our church would be faithful so that we experience that kind of salvation, that Jesus would be honored here. So this morning, we've looked at, so far, God's call and Gideon's fear. Gideon's fear is that God is not going to be faithful to his promises. And if that's you this morning, you are afraid, I want to remind you that God is always faithful to his promises. There is always hope. And then secondly this morning, I want to point out God's command and Gideon's obedience. God's command and Gideon's obedience. Look with me at verses 25 through 35 of Judges chapter 6. As God has assured him of his presence, that night, verse 25, the Lord said to Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, 
Behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they were up to meet him. Now, God calls Gideon to do something very clearly. You still see Gideon's fear, but you begin to see a faltering obedience that God trusts, excuse me, that Gideon trusts God enough to begin to obey even though he is still in fear. And I think there's some encouragement for us there as well that we don't have to experience complete confidence and complete joy to begin to obey, but that we ought to begin to obey and trust that the Lord will honor his promises. And I believe that as we obey, that confidence and that joy will grow. You see that in the life of Gideon, and you see it again and again in the life of the church throughout the New Testament, that as they see God continue to bless his promises, even as they experience persecution and trials, and Jesus said trials will come, even in those times... The church is encouraged when God again and again sustains his people. And I believe that he will sustain us. And so the first thing that we need to do is we need to begin to obey. And for them, that meant that Gideon needed to take down an altar to Baal. And I I don't want to describe a whole lot about Baal. I think in some ways it's unimportant. For them... Gods like Baal, they they promised abundant crops and they promised big families. And they worshipped idols by having parties. So there was a lot of pleasure, there was a lot of enjoyment in idol worship. And honestly, it's not that different than what we do today apart from God. We still worship pleasure. We still worship our careers. We still worship our ability to provide for ourselves. We still worship our families, sometimes at the expense of God and in the place of God. And God says, we need to cut down our idols. God will not bless a person or a church with divided loyalties. And so this morning, As you think about the things that you devote yourself to, I would encourage you to take a moment and ask, am I devoted to the Lord first? Does the God who saved me dictate what I do with my life? Or do I ask God to save me and then push him away and just go do what I want? Jesus loved us so much that he bled and died for us so that we could have peace with God. The question that I believe each of us need to ask ourselves is, do we despise the blood of Jesus and worship something else 
after we've come and asked God to forgive us for our sins and to wash us in his blood? Do we then turn and follow our own interests? Or are we obedient to Jesus Christ? Do we seek, like Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Is the kingdom of God first in your life? And I believe that we need to recognize the awesome blessings that come from faithfulness to God. God is not a monster asking us to give up good things. God is a loving Savior who calls us to himself because it's only in him that we will find fulfillment. Literally everything that Israel needed and wanted, God would provide if they had been faithful. And the problems that they're experiencing are because they have turned away from God. You actually see the sort of devotion that they should have had for God given to Baal when they are enraged that someone has cut down the altar of their false god. That's the kind of devotion and passion that we ought to have, and you can always tell an idol. When someone asks you a simple question that should have a simple answer, and instead, you become angry. You reply in a way that clearly shows that your priorities are not right, but some of us are blind to that. And my prayer is that the Spirit of God would work now and help us know where our idols are so that we can experience the power and presence of God in our lives and in our churches. Finally, this morning, I want to point out not only the call of God and Gideon's fear, the command of God and Gideon's obedience, but lastly, how God conquers and Gideon worships. Look with me, starting at verse 36, and notice some of the strange things that happen as God himself leads his people back to a place of freedom. Verse 36, Gideon, still in a place of fear, says, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. And he was early the next morning, and squeezed the fleece, and he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me just test once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. So again, Gideon is showing fear and God is showing his faithfulness. And then God describes very clearly how he is going to win the battle, how he is going to set his people free. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God very clearly is going to save Israel, but he's going to do it in a way that no one could claim Israel is responsible for. And I believe that there's a direct application for us as a church. As we ask the Lord to save us, as we look to the Lord to do a great work, we must honor God and put Him first. I don't want to say anything 
any success that we might experience is ever due to our ability to plan, to a program that we've put on, to a specific thing that we did. Churches do grow because of programs and things, and sometimes God is not there at all. If God blesses, I want it to be very clear that it was God who did the work, and we need to honor God as the God who saves. God describes to Gideon the most ridiculous battle plan that you could ever imagine. If you read through chapter 7, you realize that they are against thousands and thousands of Midianites. And God says, rather than having a few hundred people go up against these thousands, I want you to get down to just 300 men. I want to make it so clear that you guys should lose in a heartbeat. You almost sympathize with Gideon and think, man, maybe he should be a little worried. Because the odds are horrible. But God says, it has to be obvious that I did this, or you will not worship. And so God, to reassure Gideon, puts in the mouth of a non-believing man what God will do. And God tells him, look at verse 9 with me, it says, That same night the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. There is the mercy of God there for a servant who is afraid and discouraged. And I believe that God will again and again encourage his people as we look to him, even as we falter even as we are weak. And what God does is he gave a dream to a non-believer and Gideon goes and hears this dream. And you can read that in verse 13. The man says, Behold, I dreamed a dream to behold a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. The interpretation of that dream is not straightforward, and the irony of the situation is the non-believers who are about to lose demonstrate more faith in the word of God than Gideon does. Gideon, over and over and over again, questions God and doubts that he will do what he has clearly said he will do, and yet when a non-believer has a dream that's confusing, they immediately recognize the hand of God at work, and they believe that God will do for Gideon what Gideon has struggled again and again to believe. And finally, verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And for the first time, Gideon recognizes that God is going to save his people. My prayer this morning is that each of us would get to a place where we worship. I believe that some of you are not wholly devoted to the Lord, and you need to tear down your idols. You may be worshiping gods of health, gods of money, or even the idol of family. You may put your family before your relationship with God. That is sin. Some of you worship leisure. Some of you want to enjoy God's creation, but you don't want to serve him with your life. You you may be proud. Some of you worship your kids and your grandkids, and God is not first in your life. And if that's you, you need to repent this morning. And so if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of a specific sin, let me ask you this morning, would you repent of that? Would you commit to the Lord that you would stop sinning and begin to obey? You may need to talk to your spouse about this. You may need to talk to your kids. You may need to talk to me this week. 
But let me urge you now in this time as we end this service to commit to the Lord that you will tear down any idols in your life and you will obey him. Some of you this morning are devoted to the Lord, but you are discouraged. If that's you, be encouraged. God is still able to save. He can rescue. And I want to encourage you to ask God's spirit to make you strong and to pray for our church. And so I'd like to end the service now just in a time of prayer. And I'd ask you to bow your heads. And this morning, if the Spirit of God has worked in your heart and and has convicted you, I'd like to pray for you in in a a special way. And I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but if God has worked in your heart and you believe that there is a, a sin that you need to repent of, would you raise your hand so that I can pray for you? Would you let me know so that I can be in prayer? Let's pray. Father in heaven, for those who have indicated that they have chased things other than you, that they are dedicated and devoted to things other than you, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, I pray as a church that you would save us in a way that would give you the glory, that Jesus would be glorified here. Father, we want to rest in the forgiveness that your word promises, and I ask that you would bless us with peace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.